0: So Advent is the season when we wait for Christmas to arrive to celebrate the coming of Jesus. Just like Israel waited for the Messiah, we enter into this waiting and expectation. But as we wait, we remember that our lives as Christians are carried out in waiting. We're waiting for the return of Christ. We're waiting for the day when he will wipe away every tear, when he will bring about the kind of world he's promised, where the lion will lie down with the lamb, and death and decay are no longer fixtures. So, for the next few Sundays, as we wait and look forward to Christmas, we're going to focus on the thrilling topic of pain and suffering. Now, because anytime you're waiting for something, If it's something important to you, you're thrust into a difficult situation of pain and struggle. And the closer you come to the arrival of what you long for, in some ways, the more difficult it becomes. So Andrea walked into the office earlier this week. She's seven months in waiting with two more to go. And as far as I know, it gets more difficult the closer you get. The latter months produce the most discomfort, the most longing. So as Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus and Christmas, we are also learning to live with this painful edge of eagerly longing for him to return. For the next several weeks, we're going to look at different characters in the Bible who experience pain and longing. And This morning, we're going to look at perhaps uh, the most famous of sufferers, Job. Now, I hope you'll open your Bible uh, to at least the first chapter of Job and follow along. I've had Scott read from these three places in the book of Job that basically identify the different movements in the book. Now, it is a massive and mysterious book. It's 42 chapters. But in in the most simple way I know how to convey it, the, the book is framed by... One, the setup for Job's, Job's suffering, which we're going to look at closely. This dialogue between God and Satan. And by Satan, the word here is accuser. Now, chapter 42 is the resolution of Job's suffering. But in between, you have all these Dialogues. So you have Job speaking in some situations. You have Job's wife speaking in one particular case where she's basically telling Job, Curse God and die. Essentially, just get it over with. Then in many of these chapters, you have cycles of Job's friends speaking to him, accusing him of wrongdoing and telling him, Just repent. Get it over with. Obviously, there's something evil in you that you are hiding. Won't you just say it? But then you have Job defending himself, not in self-righteousness, but in saying, I'm innocent of wrongdoing and asking God, where are you and what are you doing in all of this? Asking God to be true to his goodness, essentially. (coughs) This is what we heard in chapter 29 when Scott read, where Job said, I took care of the poor. I delivered the person who was suffering, and now he can no longer. So these are the three movements. First, this dialogue between God and Satan that will lead to Job's suffering. Then you have Job and his friends going back and forth in this confusion of trying to figure out what is going on in this suffering. And then at the end, you have resolution, some sort of revolution that we're going to explore at the end. Now, what we know of Job's life is dominated by suffering. And this has become one of the most difficult challenges that most people have to faith in our world. The existence of widespread suffering alongside what Christians propose is the existence of a good and all powerful God. The question is asked sometimes it's under the breath of those of us who attend church, and it's openly by those who don't attend are these two compatible? Are they a world of horrendous evil and a God of perfect beauty and love? If you did a search on this, there's no shortage of philosophical answers from both sides of the argument. Now, the Bible itself describes a world that contains both God and suffering, one of which is temporary. And the Bible doesn't provide philosophical answers to why evil exists or how evil and God exist side by side. Now, I think part of the reason for this is because what we really need, which I hope we're going to see in Job, what we really need to know is how to live with God within pain. Because the truth is that explaining evil with some philosophical answer doesn't do away with evil. It's still there. So even if we find an explanation for it, we still have to learn to deal with it and live within it. And this is what the Bible gives us. Now, as we look at Job, we'll need to remember that his story is part of a larger story that climaxes with the most surprising and unbelievable of sufferings, the suffering of God. And the Bible is always summoning us to enter these stories and then to look at our lives through these stories. Now, first of all, in the book of Job, suffering is deeply spiritual. Suffering is deeply spiritual. As we're going to see, Job's pain will be physical, emotional, psychological. It's going to register across the spectrum. So this isn't to say that it's not those things. But this side of suffering can be quickly ignored. Yet here, it's the foundation. It plays a part in any pain or suffering we experience. Suffering is deeply spiritual. At this stage in the Bible, the character and personality of Satan are not fully developed in the way that we see in the New Testament. So we need to own this and and notice this. Satan's rebellion has not reached its full pitch so he still gathers within this heavenly court, doesn't he? But his appearance there is something like that of a long lost son. Notice even God's question to him is reminiscent of the question that God asked of Adam and Eve after their betrayal. It's as if God is still longing and hoping that Satan might return. So God says to Satan, where have you been? It's the question a heartbroken father might ask of a child after he wanders home from a series of rebellions hoping it's the last one. Where have you been? Knowing where he's been. Satan has certainly been wandering, his answer to God, going to and fro on the earth from walking up and down on it. Satan seems to be homeless, He's unsatisfied with God and God's world. And so he spends his life wandering. God then brings up to Satan his loyal follower, Job. Now, I don't know about you, but I read this and think to myself, how can I get God not to mention my name to Satan? Why does God do this? This is one of those questions that we cannot exhaust today, but one answer could be that Satan is already aware of Job, and God knows this. God knows very well that Satan has already tried to corrupt Job's goodness, and up to now he has failed. In fact, Satan's reply tells us this is the case. He tells God, Does Job fear you for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Stretch out your hand and touch everything he has and he will curse you to your face. Based on this answer, Satan has been trying to get at Job. But he hasn't been successful. Every time he's found that there's this hedge around Job that he can't get past. So God's question have you considered my servant Job, is only bringing an issue out into the open, a point of conflict between God and Satan. Like the parent who knows their child's rebellion, but the child is unwilling to name it. So as uncomfortable as it may be, the parent brings it out into the open. Now Satan's reply reveals more about his own character. He's a cynic, and he refuses to see any goodness and beauty in God's world. Beneath anything that looks like goodness and beauty, there's a stain in it. So he accuses Job of loving God only out of self-interest. And then he challenges God to take everything Job has and watch what happens. But I want you to notice exactly what, God, what Satan wants to accomplish in all of this. Satan wants Job to curse God. What he seeks is a disruption of the relationship between Job and God. His main interest is to prove that when humans are faced with the reality of evil, of a fallen and broken world, faith in God will not stand up. This is what Satan wants to show This is his test that he proposes. And this is why I say that suffering is deeply spiritual. Because above all, this accuser Satan wants to use pain and struggle to disorient us to the point of turning on God. As the story's going to bear out, God is the only firm footing we have in this world. He's the only firm footing we have. And that being the case, if Satan can diminish our devotion, if he can tarnish our goodness, he will be satisfied to have proved himself right. We were only in it for self-interest. We only worshipped God for what we could get from him. But maybe even worse than that, What will happen is we will carry out our lives like Satan. We will wander to and fro, only becoming more and more lost like Satan, never finding something that quenches our thirst. Because again, the only firm footing is in God. Now here's the really scary part. God appears to be willing to take this risk. Not that God is going to touch Job, but God is going to allow Satan to touch Job. Why? Why does he do this? We have to look at the rest of the story to find out. The rest of the book is partly an exploration in what Job will do when everything is taken from him. Will he still love God? Or is Satan right that people only love God for the benefits that he might bring them? Now here comes our second point. Suffering is personal. Suffering is personal. It is not abstract. It exists in concrete circumstances with real people. So even the shape of the book of Job takes on the normal shape of personal suffering. It's this long and confusing story with lots of speeches and lots of questions. And this is what pain and suffering are like in our lives. They're confusing, they're often drawn out, and they create lots of questions. Job endures two waves of suffering. So in the first wave, he loses in one day all his animals and servants by a combination of natural disasters and robbery. Then, his children are taken by a freak accident in a sudden storm. And because of the nature of wealth in Job's society, the loss of animals and servants, it swiftly reduces him from great wealth to absolute poverty. The death of his children then plunges him into heart-cracking grief. But as grieved as Job is, Satan's design doesn't work. Instead of cursing God, Job turns to him and blesses him. Again, we have this strange combination in the scriptures of a world in which God, who is perfect and good, exists and there is evil as well. But then comes a second wave. Job's own body is struck with sores, boils that leave him physically disfigured and repulsive. The pain is the kind that tortures you, tortures you whether you're sleeping or you're awake. Job then curses the day he was born and he longs for death. On top of this, the accumulation of all these events in Job's society suggests that he's a dangerous man to be around. He's a sinner. You don't want to get too close to him. So Job also faces social rejection, alienation, and as we'll see, accusations from his friends. In one of his darkest moments, Job describes his situation like this. Thick darkness covers my face. He's lost all his normal orientation to life and nothing makes sense to him anymore way Job describes his experience is nearly universal as a testimony for most people in the deepest suffering of their lives, that all orientation to life is lost. Everything we thought we knew is blown apart. In the deepest suffering, it is impossible for any of us to discern clearly what God is up to. Now, lest we think this is an issue of spiritual maturity, note that this is also the feeling of the author of Psalm 42. This person is accused by those around him of having been abandoned by God. He's so distraught that he describes his tears as having been his food for days and nights on end. He says to himself, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, my God. There are situations when all the normal navigation points that enable you to understand where you are with people and with God, when all of these are lost. When all of these cease to be reliable and you feel completely alone in pain and in utter darkness. This is a testimony of Scripture and of saints through history. And it's been coined something like a dark night of the soul. Now for many of us who haven't experienced something like this, it's hard for us to imagine it. And like it or not, a lot of us will be tempted to think that there is something inherently wrong with people who suffer in an ongoing way, be it from sickness, depression, loss, or whatever. Eventually, you think people just, they need to pick themselves up. Don't we say this sometimes? For others of us, we see people who suffer and we think we need to share our experience. Now, here's what I think we need to draw on from Joe's story. Job's story offers a strong warning in how to be friends with those who suffer. Job's friends assumed that God, being holy, good, and all-powerful, would never bring suffering to a righteous man. This is the way the disciples react when they see the man blind in the Gospels. They walk by, they see him, and they say, who sinned? This has to be the case. How else would he be blind?" unless he did something wrong or his parents did something wrong. So Job's friends assume something about God that he would never bring suffering to a righteous man. They draw on generalizations and they end up falsely accusing Job, slandering him. But because they're wrong about their friend Job, they also are wrong about God. And they will not get away with this. They hold to depersonalized truths, which prevent them from loving Job in his suffering and his agony. And then in depersonalizing Job, they also depersonalize God himself. Now, the truth is, a lot of us have been guilty of things like this, and we feel feel terrible, terrible about it when we realize it. We listen to someone's pain, and in a desire to say something, we drift into abstractions. Well... Everything's going to be okay. Instead of just sitting with them in their pain and trying to bear it in some way. We might even try to give a reason for their pain or their suffering, when in reality, even if Job knew exactly what God was up to, it would not automatically resolve his suffering, would it? The suffering is still there. The physical pain, the emotional and psychological pain. The greatest warning we can draw from Job's friends is don't talk too much. A bulk of the book is made up of these friends' speeches, and at the end, God is going to affirm Job who wrestles with him and even challenges him, but God is going to rebuke these friends. In describing one of these characters, one of these friends, one writer resorts to some stern language. Elihu, he says, is an irascible, presumptuous blowhard. Excuse the language, but none of us wants to be accused of this, do we? So when we're with friends who are suffering, don't assume too much too quickly. And don't talk too much. So what do we do then? Suffering is deeply spiritual. It's also deeply personal. And God shows us what we're to do by what he does. So this is our third and final point. God's response to our suffering is deeply personal. Deeply personal. So God's response comes at the end, after all the friends have spoken over and over again. And again, the shape of the book of Job reflects real life. Friends might be capable of offering some relief in our suffering. But our final comfort has to come from God. We will not find final comfort until we find it from him. So What does God say? What could justify or alleviate Job's pain? At the end, Job does regain wealth and he has additional family. But of course, this doesn't mend the losses he's experienced. In fact, it tells us that Job's family comes to comfort him for all the evils that he suffered. Is there anything that does mend the losses? Now, I'm not going to suggest that all Job's suffering goes away. But Job's healing begins with something of a vision. A vision. He says to God in chapter 42, verse 5, I had heard of view by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. After a long period of darkness with no comfort, of crying out to God for His goodness, for God to do good by Job, of asking God why He deserved all this punishment, God had finally spoken to Job. In fact, Job receives one of the longest speeches from God in the entire Bible. Do you know this? There's no other individual in the Bible who receives nearly this much of personal interaction from God. There could be something to this. That those who persist in seeking God in the deepest suffering will receive Him in the most personal way. Now there's a common view, and I'm not gonna, we're not going to take the time to go to the speeches that God gives. These begin in uh, Job chapter 38, and they continue on for several chapters. We, we don't have time to look at all of these. But there's a common view, if you read these, that you might see some of this, that God is rebuking Job for his lack of trust. That he gets on to Job and talks sternly to him for not believing. Now this doesn't quite make sense of everything. For all of Job's questions and frustrations while he's suffering, the only rebuke God gives is leveled at Job's friends. God tells them, "'You have not spoken of, what, of me what is right.'" as my servant Job has. Now what is it that Job has said about God that has hit the spot? What is it that Job has said that is right in comparison with his friends? There doesn't appear to be only one thing. Instead, it seems to have more to do with the spirit in which Job approaches God. Because even though Job was angry in the midst of a lot of his suffering, even though Job longed for an answer from God, anger and even indignation are one way to continue holding on to a relationship of love. If you're fighting with a spouse, in some ways, that means that you still, you're still love them and that you want to hold on to this relationship of love. And so, in a way, Job's passionate accusations against God move Job closer to God. And God's passionate response in return is an affirmation of his love for Job. Job was struggling to believe that God still loved him. And so, in his speeches, God is saying firmly, Do you not know? Do you not know who I am? And he's essentially telling him, of course, I still love you. So, God is affirming his presence even when life is dark. Now, remember, suffering is deeply spiritual and deeply personal. Satan's real aim is to use personal suffering as a means to drive Job into alienation from God. Remember, this is the speech with God in the very beginning. He wants to get Job to curse God. Now, as we arrive at the end of the book, has Satan been successful? No, Satan has radically failed. In fact, he hasn't only failed, his plan has backfired. In the aftermath of his suffering, Job takes his stand with God, and his love of God is only for God's sake. Satan was wrong. Job doesn't only love God for the blessings that he can give, he is committed to God for who God is. Job is refined by the fire, and instead of turning away from God, Job is now nearer to him than when the sufferings began. So Job presents us with one picture of how we live with a perfectly good God in a broken and sometimes cruel world. We take our stand with God. We even argue and challenge Him in our darkest moments, trusting that God will not leave us. He'll give us a sure footing and He will show us a path in the darkness. Now this picture that we see in Job, it only becomes clearer as the Bible moves on. When Satan's rebellion grew, so did God's presence. And so in the New Testament, we see a Satan who is no longer gathering with the courts of heaven, but he is in outright rebellion against God. And as this happens, God comes closer. He meets us personally through the incarnation. And in the incarnation, God becomes like Job himself, he suffers. Except there's a sense in which God goes even further than Job. This is where God is different. God allows Satan to kill Jesus. You see, God told Satan you can't touch his life. And yet with Jesus, he allows Satan to go all the way and to think that he has destroyed him. But again, Satan's plan backfired. And now at the heart of Christian faith lies a suffering and crucified God who is with us in our deepest and darkest of sufferings. And he assures us of his love. So Adveb is a season when we inhabit the longing of a groaning creation and a human history that longs for renewal and healing. And as we inhabit Advent, we behold the One who comes personally into our pains and struggles, who bears them, and who assures us of His return, and that He will make all things well. So it's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.